Welcome to all of you who are joining us online and also those of you who are meeting together here at Central Campus. Before I get into the message today, I just um, want to forewarn you that I have a cold with a ticklish throat, which means I may cough from time to time. And um, I may also be speaking a little more mellow, um, just to avoid coughing a lot. Uh, Gwen, my wife, has been housebound uh, for the last two weeks with a bad cold and cough, and I have tried to avoid her like the plague. I've slept in a separate bedroom, did everything I could to stay away from her, but then we came to Valentine's Day. <laughs> I mean, how do you stay away from the person you love on Valentine's Day? And so um, I got her flowers, and she gave me this cough. Anyways, thanks, dear. I love you, too. And just for the record, the kiss was worth it. Anyways, <laughs> we're continuing our series in the book of 1 John. It's a letter written by the Apostle John to address false teaching that was infiltrating the church about what it means to be a Christian. And this resulted in many of the believers being confused about their faith. In fact, some even wondered whether they were Christians at all. And so John wrote this letter to clarify what it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ so that they could know they have eternal life. In chapter 1, and then right through to chapter 2, verse 6, John essentially says that Christ's followers believe that Jesus is fully God and also fully human, that he lived that he taught profound truths, performed amazing miracles, died on the cross in order to atone for our sins, was buried, then rose on the third day, appearing not only to his disciples, but to more than 500 people at the same time. However, Christ's followers don't just believe these things about Jesus. They also believe in Jesus, cultivate a growing friendship with Jesus and together with other Christians in his church seek to live the way that Jesus did. Which brings us to our scripture lesson for today, beginning verse 7 in chapter 2, where we're given another evidence of a sincere follower of Jesus Christ. Now open your Bibles, if you would, uh, to 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Now authentic Christians not only seek to live like Jesus lived, but the passage we're going to look at says they also seek to love like Jesus loved. Now to be clear, John is not saying if you want to become a Christian and have eternal life, you have to live this way. In other words, what he's really saying here is that the evidence that you are a Christian, that you have a genuine growing relationship with Jesus, is that the direction of your life will be to live this way. You will have a heart desire to live this way. Not perfectly, of course, but the direction of your life will be to love and to live like Jesus. And so, with all that in mind, would you now stand and join me in reading our scripture lesson? Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. 
This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. And there is nothing to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. And Lord, our hands are open to you to receive from you today. Lord, whatever it is that you want us to understand, whatever it is you want us to learn and to follow through and do, please make that apparent to us today. For we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, on this family weekend, also this Valentine's weekend, I'm reminded again that there is no greater longing in the heart of a person than to be loved and accepted by others. You check it out. If you were to drill down and explore why people are unhappy, why they're uh, unfulfilled and unsatisfied in life, why relationships are strained or broken, it's because those involved do not feel loved and accepted. And I'm also convinced of this. The reason that we struggle loving others and feeling loved by others is because we do not understand God's love for us. Years ago, a, a member of a family uh, that was really falling apart called me and asked if, if I could come over and provide some counsel for them as a family. When I got there and began to explore what the problem was, in a matter of moments, everyone was yelling and blaming and accusing each other. I eventually called a timeout and among other things said, you will never be at peace with each other until you make your peace with God. The father looked at me and he said, pardon me, but why does God have to be brought into this? I said, because after listening to all of you, it's clear to me that you need to grow in your understanding of what real love is, how to give it, and also how to receive it. And true love, the kind that lasts, is found in God. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. In other words, he showed us how to love. Without God, we'd have no basis for even knowing what love is. The Apostle John makes this very clear, not only in the passage that we just read, but throughout the letter here. In 1 John, in this letter, John focuses on five or six essential themes, and he just keeps um, repeating those themes or going back to those themes as you read through the letter. And one of those themes, of course, is the theme of love. And so you see it here in chapter 2, which we just read. But now turn over to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 14, he writes this. We know we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Or look over at chapter 4, verse 7. And dear friends, let us love one another, 
for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. In other words, he first loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Then look at verse 20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And then back, of course, to our scripture lesson today in 1 John 2, verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light, in other words, in Christ, but hates a brother or sister, is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. In all these passages, it's pretty clear that John is saying that a litmus test that you've truly experienced the love and grace of God in your life is a willingness to extend love and grace to others. Now in verse 7, John writes, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. Now what John is referring to is what Jesus called the first and the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. And this is what we read there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on to these two commandments. So how does the law and the teaching of the prophets hang on to these two commandments? Well, if you love God... You're going to worship him and him alone. You're not going to worship or love something or someone more than him. If you love God, you're not going to trust someone or something more than you do him. You see, this is the essence of what sin is. Many people don't like the word sin these days. They see it as old school. They see it as basically a negative term That's all about do's and don'ts. But you see, sin is simply this. At its core, sin is worshiping or loving someone or something more than God. So why is this such a big deal to God? Why does he insist that he be the object of our highest affection? Well, let me explain it to you this way. If you woke up tomorrow and everything and everyone that you hold dear was stripped away from you, your status, your position at work, your stuff, your family, your friends, and all that you had was God, would he be enough? 
Or would you be totally devastated when you discover that all of these other things that you worshipped are no longer part of your life? Well, you see, the, the truth is, a day is coming when that is exactly what's going to happen. When we breathe our last in this life, everything we cherish and trust will be left behind. And if we haven't cultivated a friendship with God, we're going to be alone. We will have nothing. We will spend the rest of eternity without God and without anything else that we worshipped and put ahead of God in this life. And folks, there's a definition. That's a definition for despair. And God loves us too much to see us end up there. That's why over and over again he says in Scripture to make him our ultimate priority, the object of our highest affection, to worship and love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And that's why he sent his precious son Jesus to make a way for us to be a friend of God. Now, furthermore, Jesus said the law hangs on to these two commandments, to love God and to love others. And he said that, secondly, because if you love God and you love your neighbor, well, you're not going to murder your neighbor, are you? If you love God and your neighbor, you're not going to steal from your neighbor, are you? You're not going to covet what your neighbor has, including their spouse. If you truly love God and your neighbor, you aren't going to lie to them. You're not going to slander them or pass on negative gossip about them. If you truly love God and your neighbor, you will want others to think the best about them and therefore seek to protect their reputation and their dignity rather than destroy it. In short, if you love someone, you're not deliberately going to sin against them, which is what all the law addresses. You're just simply not going to do that. Oh, you're going to drop the ball once in a while. That, of course, but it won't be the direction of your life. So look at verse 8. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Now, in verse 7, John says, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old one. And then in verse 8, he says, yet I'm writing you a new command. So what is all this about? Well, we know he's not replacing the old commandment, which is to love God and to love others, with a new one, because he's already clarified that in verse 7. What he's saying is, I'm giving you a new insight. I'm giving you a kairos on how to love God and others. And it's found in Christ. In other words, with Christ coming to earth, you now have an example of someone who loves God and others perfectly. If you want to know how to love God and how to love others, look at Jesus Christ. Now, in John 13, 34, Jesus affirms this when he says to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, interestingly, Jesus refers to it as a new command. So the command to love one another isn't new. But when Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, folks, that's new. It's the same command, but it's filled with new meaning because of the way that Christ loves us. So how did he love us? Well, he left the glory of heaven, the incredible relationship that he enjoyed with the Trinity, and he came to earth. We have no understanding of what that involved for him. He became a man. God became a human. Again, we have no idea of what that meant to him. He died for us. He took the blame and endured the punishment for our sins. You see, that's new in the sense that no one on this planet has ever loved like that. Now, when Jesus gave this command in John 13 to love others the way that he loves us, if you back up to the beginning of chapter 13, you realize that when he said this to his disciples, they were gathered together in the upper room in what we refer to today as the, the Lord's Supper. I'm sorry, the Last Supper. And he said this just before he was going to be portrayed, betrayed by Judas and arrested. He's about to face crowds of people who hate him and who cry out, crucify him. He's about to be spit upon, mocked, beaten, ultimately nailed to a cross. He has forewarned his disciples that this day would come, the day when he would be arrested and put on a cross. And he does so again on this particular occasion in the upper room. But you see, the disciples, they don't really hear what he's saying because... They're focusing on themselves rather than on him. In fact, if you read Luke's account of what happened in the upper room, you discover that one of the things that was going on is the disciples were actually arguing with each other about who was the greatest. Not an easy group to love. Now, we're not sure why, but the servant assigned to wash the dusty feet of guests, which was a custom then. He's not there to do his job. Maybe he missed the cab or the bus or whatever, didn't show up. And so the disciples, they enter the upper room. And since no one's there to wash their feet, they just go straight to the table. They recline at the table with dirty and dusty feet. And most likely, they're thinking to themselves, there is no way. I'm going to take the time and stoop to this low position of washing my own feet. Again, not an easy group to love. While they were debating about which of them was the greatest, Jesus stands up. He takes off his outer coat. He wraps a towel around his waist. He pours water into a basin. He begins to wash 
each of his disciples' feet. And when he finishes washing their feet, he says this to them. Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Now in that society, washing the feet of guests was a duty reserved for a servant at the bottom of the pecking order, the lowest of the lowest servant. And in doing this, Jesus was teaching them through his example what he meant when moments later he said this to them, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus essentially says, if you want to know about the kind of love I'm talking about, as I have loved you humbly, sacrificially, selflessly, so I am calling you to love others. Now remember, Jesus was fully human, as we are. When I think of the overbearing, unreliable, shoot-from-the-hip Peter, when I think of James and John, whom Jesus referred to as the sons of thunder, which means they were likely spoiled and had tempers, when I think of stubborn and doubting Thomas, when I think of scheming Judas, I'm sure that there were times that Jesus was irritated and exasperated with them often. And yet he loved them. So being fully human, even as we are, how was Jesus able to love his disciples? Well, we get a clue in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. It says this, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jesus was able to love others the way that he did because while he was on earth, he lived in humble dependence on his heavenly Father and also on the Holy Spirit who filled his heart with God's love without measure. And the same is true for us. That is why in verse 8, just look at verse 8. The Apostle John says this, God's love is seen in him, referring to Christ, and in you. You see, when you embrace Christ as your Savior and Lord, he invades your life and you become one with Christ. He is in you and you are in him. You're one. And this love of Christ is, is now in you. And as you increasingly submit to him, even as he submitted to his father, John says in verse 8, the darkness of who you were slowly passes away. 
And the true light of who you are in Christ shines more brightly with each passing day through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, not that you and, or I will, will love perfectly as Christ does. There will still be times when you will not feel or act loving toward someone. Notice again in verse 8 that John does not say the darkness is past. No, he's saying it's passing. Loving as Christ loved will be a lifelong process. Love is not going to be the perfection of your life. But love will be the direction of your life if you are in Christ, in the light. Now, you've probably noticed that John speaks very black and white, in in very black and white terms here. Look at verse 9 again. Anyone who claims to be in the light, in other words, in Christ, but hates a brother or sister, is still in darkness. Now, hate is a very strong word. In fact, I looked it up in the dictionary, and Webster defines hate as having an extreme dislike towards someone, to detest or to loathe someone. Now, most of us, we convince ourselves that we don't hate anyone like this. When we think of hating someone, we think of those who, you know, who physically uh, beat up the people they hate. We think of those who spray paint the cars of those that they hate. We think of those who dump garbage on the front yard of those that they hate or those that speak extremely hurtful things to them. And we say to ourselves, well, you know, I would never do something like that. And so, obviously, I don't hate anyone. And yet, we will speak maliciously about them behind their back. We will look for any opportunity to make them look bad in the eyes of other people. And what John is saying is, if that is the direction that your heart is pointed, then call it what it is. You hate that person. And if you consistently continue to hate that person, it may be evidence that you're still living in darkness, that you don't understand or have fully embraced the grace and forgiveness that Christ offers you. Again, when we are hurt, we all may walk in darkness for a short time. But John says here that true Christians, those who are in the light, those who are in Christ, they see it for what it is, and they don't stay in darkness. They take steps toward the light and make things right. So how do we do this? How do we love as Jesus loves? Well, Jesus gives us some instruction on this in Luke chapter 6. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke 6 for a moment. And this is what Jesus says there. But to those who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now I want you to notice that Jesus does not command us here to like our enemies. 
He does not ask us to be best friends or to go on holidays with our enemies. Although who knows? Sometimes when we break through the barrier of our differences and actually get to know people that we feel are our enemies, we may end up becoming friends and going on vacation together. But the thing I want to point out is that Jesus here calls us to love our enemies, not necessarily to like them. In the Greek, there are at least four different words for the word love, and Jesus only uses one of them here. There is storge, which is the love that you have for your family. There is eros, which is sexual, passionate, romantic love, root word of the word erotic. There is phileo, which is a friendship love between closest friends. All of these kinds of love describe a person's feelings of love for one another and therefore can't be forced because we're talking about feelings. For example, you can't command someone to have romantic feelings for someone else. And so Jesus isn't asking us here to like our enemy. We are being asked to love our enemy. And the kind of love that he's referring to is the fourth um, kind of love, agape. Agape love is a decision to love someone, choosing to love them back, to extend grace, goodwill, and blessing, to treat them as if you did like them, even when they don't love us back, or even deserve to be loved. So how do we do that practically? Well, again, Jesus addresses that right here. First of all, we need to name our enemy. Jesus says, love your enemies. So the question is, who's my enemy? If we're going to love our enemies, we need to know who our enemies are. As I said a moment ago, most people, and in particular those of us who uh, are Christians, we don't think we hate anyone. We like to believe that we love everyone. And so what happens is we go into into denial. Even though we do things and we say things that clearly prove that we have enemies, we won't consciously admit it to ourselves, much less to God or to anyone else, that there are people who feel like enemies to us. Daryl Johnson makes the astute observation that you won't come to love your enemies until you admit that that they are actually your enemies. So let me give you some examples that may serve to help us identify who our enemies really are and perhaps pull the scab off our denial. Your enemy may be someone who simply doesn't like you and makes, it, and makes you quite aware of it. Your enemy, in the words of Jesus, is the person who hates you, who curses and slanders you, who mistreats you, or even seeks to injure you. Your enemy could be people of a certain race, or a certain religion, 
or people who hold opposing views on politics than you do, or hypersensitive issues like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. Your enemy could be someone who abused you in some way. Your enemy could be your parents who trashed your self-esteem while you were growing up, or parents who indulged and spoiled you and said you were the darling of the universe, and now you lack the personal discipline and the character to be successful in life, relationships, and in the workplace. Or maybe your enemy is a rebellious and ungrateful child who you poured your life into, who now blames you for everything and won't take responsibility for their own actions. Maybe your enemy is a spouse who withholds his or her love and affection from you, or who you feel you can never satisfy or please. Maybe your enemy is a spouse who cheated on you, or a former spouse who's just making the custody and the care of the kids a miserable experience. Maybe your enemy is a friend who you trusted, and yet who ultimately betrayed you. Maybe your enemy is a boyfriend or a girlfriend who broke your heart. Maybe your enemy are people in your church who don't align with you theologically. Maybe your enemy is an obnoxious neighbor who consistently has loud parties, lets their dog bark nonstop and do his business on your lawn. Maybe your enemy is someone at work constantly undermines you and your reputation, who is unreliable, has poor work habits, and yet has a good talk, talks smoothly, and gets the bonuses and the promotions. In short, if there is a person that you don't like, that you don't respect, that you avoid, that you don't pray for, compliment, or encourage, if there is a person that you take delight casting in a negative light to other people, and you find that your heart leaps when they fail or are demoted, or your heart grows cold when you find out that they're succeeding and are well thought of, chances are really high that this person or persons are your enemy. That's the first way to love your enemy, is to identify who they are. A second way to love our enemy is to do good to them. Jesus says here, do good to those who hate you. In Luke 6, 31, Jesus says, do to others as you would have them do to you. Think of your enemy for a moment, and I know probably most of you here are Christ followers, and you're saying, man, I just don't hate anybody. I don't have any enemies. Okay, so let me frame it to you this way. Think about the person you like the least. Okay? The person you like the least. Do you know? Can you, can you picture that person now? You probably have a dozen, right? So get it down to one at least, all right? The person that you like the least. 
Now, if it were in your power to help that person prosper enormously in their career, in their finances, in their relationships, or be admired by thousands, millions, if it was in your power to prosper them this way, would you do it? See, that gets at the heart of what Jesus is getting at here. If you're wondering how to interact with your enemy, Jesus says, put yourself in their shoes. Treat them as you would want to be treated. Do for them what you would appreciate having done for you. If your enemy is successful, congratulate them. If she needs help, go to her aid. If your enemy is someone who has views and convictions that are contrary to yours, but isn't belligerent about it, rather than avoiding them, which we often do, do good to them by spending some time with them. Not to argue, but to hear their story and to sincerely understand their point of view. You may never agree with each other, but you may become friends and agree to disagree with each other. And God may use you in their life to introduce them to him. Even if your enemy ignores you, mistreats you, lashes out at you, don't retaliate. Just keep being friendly and kind and doing good to them. C.S. Lewis, he says, the key to loving your enemy is to treat them as if you like them. He writes, as soon as we do this, we find one of the greatest secrets. When you're behaving as if you liked someone, you will presently come to love them. Some of you need to apply this to your marriage. Some of you here would have to admit that your spouse feels more like an enemy than a friend and lover. Well, if you want to rekindle the love and passion that you once had with your spouse, begin to treat them the way you did at first when you first fell in love. A woman came to her lawyer and said, I I want a divorce. I have absolutely no feelings left for my husband. In fact, I hate him. I feel totally neglected, unappreciated, and I want to make him pay. I want to take him for all he's worth, but even that doesn't feel like enough. I want to hurt him the way that he's hurt me. The attorney reflected on all this for a moment and then said, I have an idea. You're going to divorce him anyway, so why not for the next three months, why not bless him and build him up? Be kind to him. Don't criticize him. Give him your undivided attention. Speak well of him. Do something nice for him every day. Every time he does something nice for you, thank him for it. Look your best. Be affectionate. Tell him what a great husband he is. Do that for the next three months. And then when he thinks he has your confidence, hit him with the news that it was all an act, that you hate him and that you want a divorce. It will destroy him. 
Well, she thought, you know, hey, I like that. I can't go wrong with this. I can't wait to see the look in his eyes when I tell him it was all an act and that it's over. Well, she carried out her plan to perfection. However, there was just one little problem with her plan. After three months of acting like she loved her husband, she realized one day she had fallen in love with him again. And instead of seeking a divorce, they went on a second honeymoon. Now, of course, it doesn't always turn out that way, does it? But whether it does or it doesn't, what Jesus says here still stands. He calls us to do good to those who we feel are like enemies. Thirdly, we exercise agape love to our enemies when we bless them with our words. Jesus says, bless those who curse you. This means making a decision that if hurtful, angry, mean words are spoken to you, you won't escalate the war of words by retaliating, but you will respond with gentleness and kindness. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Blessing our enemy with our words means we will resist spreading rumors and negative gossip, slander, anything that would tarnish the character and the reputation of the other person. Blessing our enemy with our words includes something as simple as greeting our enemy graciously. And then fourthly, we exercise agape love to our enemies when we pray for them. Jesus says, pray for those who mistreat you. Now, John Ortberg, he points out that in the old Roman runes, you know, 2,000 years ago, archaeologists have discovered thousands of tablets with prayers on them. The only problem is those prayers were curses. People would actually pay money to address a god or a goddess and essentially say, this person hurt me and this is how this person hurt me and I want them to pay for what they did to me. So here's one such prayer that they found on a tablet. I invoke you, holy angels and holy names, to tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, and shatter Eucharist, the charioteer, and all his horses tomorrow in the arena of Rome. Let him not receive the honors. Let him be broken up and let him drag behind. Let his breath be bad and his teeth be yellow. I made up the last part there. But my point is, thousands of these kinds of prayer curses were put on tablets. So how many tablets do you think that they found in which people prayed that God would bless their enemy? Not a one. I wonder if that's still pretty representative of what happens today. We may not actually pray 
curses on our enemies. But I wonder how often we wish negative things on our enemy. And conversely, how often do we pray for God's blessing on our enemy? That is what Jesus calls us to do. And here's the thing. As you bring your enemy to God in prayer, and you ask him to bless them and their family, to safeguard their health, to encourage them and to draw them close to himself, something is going to begin to happen in your heart. And you're going to find that your attitude toward your enemy is beginning to change. You can't pray for a person very long and still hate them. Now, this will not be something that will come easily for us. But our capacity to pray for God's blessing on our enemy is the litmus test of our own experience of God's grace. Jesus said in Matthew 6.15, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. What he's really saying there is, is when we stubbornly refuse to extend grace to others, including our enemy, it shows that we really haven't fully experienced the amazing grace of God in our own lives. And we must understand that God loves us too much to leave us there. If our heart is hard, if we refuse to extend grace and love to our enemy, then like a loving father, he will often discipline us in some way to bring us to a place of desperation, a place where we hit rock bottom and find ourselves in need of the grace and mercy of God. And then by his grace, he will restore us so that we can not only proclaim that our God is merciful and gracious, but begin to freely extend grace and a radical love to others, including our enemies, because we have truly experienced God's radical love and grace ourselves. Friends, you may not think much of your enemy, but God does. You may think your enemy doesn't deserve grace, but God does. Jesus doesn't just say, you and I are worth dying for. He says our enemy is worth dying for. The cross really shows how much people matter to God. You see, we have no reason to ever conclude that we are worthless because our creator God, Jesus Christ, thought that we were so precious that he came to this planet and all that that meant for him and he died for us. And God calls us to value other people that he created with the same love. Even when everything in us is repulsed by the attitude or the behavior of another person, God calls us to remember that he died for that person too. And that this person needs Jesus and also needs to see the love of Jesus in us. Now again, we can't do this in our own strength. We need to humble ourselves, call out to God to change our thinking and our attitudes in this area of our lives. But as we keep leaning into God and trusting him and asking 
for his work of grace in our lives. Galatians 5.16 assures us that the more that we walk in the spirit, in the light, in the way of Christ, the less we will carry out our self-centered desires. As we trust in him, as we submit to him, and ask him to help us love people the way that he does, we can know that God is at work transforming us from the inside out. In a moment, we're going to gather around the Lord's table. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We're going to be reminded of his incredible love for us. We're going to be reminded that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet far from God, while we were yet, in a sense, his enemies, Christ came and died for us, sacrificed his very life for us, and paid for our sins on the cross. I want you to take a moment right now just to bow your heads and to reflect on the message that you've just heard here from 1 John. Reflect on what Christ has done for you. And then as you think about your enemy, ask the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what is it that you want me to do about it? What is one step you want me to take?